SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 21 with guest Joe Chelko. Before we start the show this week, it's with great sadness I have to note the apparent passing of Dr. Jim Gray. Uh, Jim was a former guest on this podcast, and I had the great pleasure of meeting him in uh, 2004. Uh, He's always been uh, one of my heroes in the database area, and uh, it appears he's been lost at sea in in recent weeks uh, while travelling to the Farallon Islands to spread his mother's ashes. Uh, given the Coast Guard's now given up uh, the search, it, uh, it really looks like he is well and truly lost, and uh, it's certainly with great sadness that I note his passing. Welcome. Our guest today is Joe Selko. Joe was a member of the ANSI Database Standards Committee from 1987 to 1997 and helped write the ANSI ISO SQL 89 and 92 standards. He's written over 800 columns in the Computer Trade and Academic Press, mostly dealing with data and databases. He's the author of quite a number of books. His SQL for Smarties books have been particularly well-known and uh, given him a strong reputation in the community and have all now been in multiple editions. His SQL programming style book uh, has, I'm sure, started many a debate. So welcome, Joe. Thank you. What I'll do first up is I'll get you to describe how you came to get involved with SQL at all. Well, that's a, sort of a good story. I was an honest Fortran and COBOL programmer, of mostly C, mostly scientific stuff, uh, early in my career. Um, oh, how should I put My first master's was in math. Mm-hmm. So I knew how to do Fortran. I understood statistics more than I wanted to. Um, <laughs> I put myself through night school for two master's yeah. degrees, all working full-time. Um, the uh, the only cla- the only math classes that would make at night at Georgia State University were stack courses. Nobody else cared about uh, multi-valued logic, linear transforms. No, it was always the business and the psych majors and a few mathematicians taking stack courses. Yeah. So I finished up with something like forty hours in, in, in statistics and was a Fortran programmer, and that's really where I, I began doing my stuff. My, my stuff. I got into defense contracting because that was uh, you know, that's what we did from, in, in my day, especially when you were an army brat. Yeah. Um, and it was in, it was good. And at some point, I showed up at an anti standards committee meeting because it happened to be in Los Angeles when I was living there. It was nice. It was interesting. I was getting the hang of it because being a statistician, I was already interested in data as data. Mm. Um. You, you didn't find the committee meetings very dry? Um, yes and no at times. Frankly, the early committee meetings uh, were really great. Uh, some of the best people in the world. 
there was a lot of confusion in those days about uh, whether you could copyright languages or patent them, exactly what intellectual property was. I mean, this is, this is going back to when nobody had written laws. And uh, how should I put it? Um, now, I live in a country where there is one lawyer for every 400 people. Oh, yes. <laughs> what is wrong with this picture? So it was, it was very questionable as to exactly what we could do with the language. So I showed up. I was already writing for the trade press, and I covered a committee meeting. And then one of my editors came back and said, you know, if you'll keep going to these meetings, we'll, we'll cover your expenses. Excellent. You'll write it up. <laughs> and, uh, well... That was the next 10 years or so. I could always find somebody who would help me a little bit, or when I was in between companies or jobs or whatever, I'd, I'd do it myself, and I just kept going. We were really in a, a weird sort of situation. We weren't sure whether we were going to be violating antitrust laws or intellectual property laws when we brought things in from the companies to the committee. And we used to do really little things that the lawyers had told us to do. Somebody from one company, say IBM, Oracle, Hewlett Packard, whoever, would stand up and announce, I know of at least one product which sometime in a future release may or may not have the following feature I'm about to uh, submit a paper for. <laughs> Maybe. Mm -hmm. Everybody would make a note, yeah, that means the next release IBM's DB2 is going to have this in it. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, the, the heroes to me were Phil Shaw and IBM in those days. Mm -hmm. um, we, we started working on what we called RDL. We, we had a thing called NDL, Network Data Language, that was essentially the codicil model. Uh, and we were trying to abstract it, turn it into a, a standard and so on. Uh, we finally finished it. Nobody cared. But we also started on a thing called RDL, Relational Data Language. Mm -hmm. that, um, well, it was sort of floating around. It was kind of SQL-like, and we weren't sure about things. Fulshaw came in with a copy of the um, the IBM specs for SQL, put them down on the table and said, it's public domain. Wow. We're putting our specs in public. In those days, this was, I mean, there was no legal precedence or anything. Yeah, it was just not so done. IBM went yeah. From being the, yeah, but IBM went from being the great Satan to being the heroes. <laughs> um, of course, old people, you know, kids these days hate Microsoft. I'm old enough, I hate IBM. <laughs> they, they became the good guys. Um, but I, I kept at it, and then uh, after doing a lot of uh, articles, Bruce Spatz at Morgan Kaufman approached me, why don't you write a book? And I said, well, sure, I can write a book. Writing a book is just like writing uh, 10 or 12 magazine articles, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, 10, 12 <laughs> chapters, 15 chapters, right? Of course I can do that. Okay, I was a year late, of course. Yeah. Only a year late. <laughs> Completely different thing. Um, Smarties caught on because it was the first book to get out there with the um, with the actual working programmer help that was needed in a very, very new language. I think people miss this, um, though you see it all the time now. SQL is a declarative language. Okay, I know that's redundant, but yeah. it also requires a declarative mindset. And people who begin with OO or traditional languages do not have the mindset for it. Uh, and they, they choke on it. They really want to see nice procedural steps. 
um, rather than a, a complete declaration. The only declarative language that uh, the people actually use before they get to SQL is spreadsheets. Yeah. Think about it. Did you ever view a spreadsheet as a declarative language? It is. And it's a very strange-looking one. Uh, think of it as a programming language. It's got a nice graphic, great interface, mm-hmm. but it's a, declar- it's a declarative language. It's a very, very different model uh, than uh, the traditional sequential uh, procedural programming. So it's a, I got out there with, 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 the, with the first good book on advanced uh, programming. It stuck, uh, thank goodness. A lot of it did come from the magazine columns and whatnot. Yeah. The second edition came out, was good. We're now on the third edition, and my publisher sort of hates me for the third edition. <laughs> um, they were thinking no, they were thinking that the third edition would be about the same size as the second edition. So mm. when they priced it, they priced it 200 pages shorter than it actually wound up being. Ah, uh, yes. So it's, it is a bargain. <laughs> and then I started doing little spin-offs, specialized things like trees and hierarchies in, in SQL. Yeah. That's the, the trend in, um, in books these days. Rather than the encyclopedia that's five inches thick and costs $1,000 sitting on your bookshelf, you get uh, a smaller book for 20 to $40 that um, focuses on the topic you're interested in. Yeah, I actually quite enjoy that format of book. In fact, uh, uh, I have to uh, want, mention one of the things I've been doing is uh, writing a couple of little books for Rational Press. And uh, okay. I think one of, one of the things that most appealed to me about it is, is that they have a limit in their case of 210 pages, uh, roughly there anyway. And you know, the thinking, I think, is that if you can't say what you're intending to say in about that size on a specific topic, then, then you know, you're probably filling it too much. And, uh, That's the same thing about movies. Yeah. You can't describe the plot on the back of a business card. It's too complicated to make. Yeah. And so, yeah, I must admit I enjoyed that. And, again, with the, with the books that you have, the thing, one of the things I do like about them is actually the size of the books, that uh, they're an approachable size. Now the thing I like about it is when I go to uh, when I go out for job interviews or consulting work or whatever, and I see my books on somebody's shelf, it's got post-it notes sticking out of it. Ah, uh, yes. That's that is the sincerest praise you can get from a programmer. <laughs> this is important enough. I put a post-it note in it. Yeah. Oh. Well, so the one I the one this. that uh, has me quite had me quite intrigued, of course, was the SQL programming style book, and uh, that's the uh, material I was looking at, pretty much covering today some of the the topics from there, because uh, I think it's it's almost a bit like a, a set of rules or a set of ideas, but uh, every time you write those sort of things down, you're guaranteed to start an almost religious de- uh, religious style <laughs> debate. <laughs> and uh, I, I have no doubt that uh, your book has actually already started uh, a number of religious-style debates on various forums and so on, and, uh, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, so <laughs> the, um, I, I suppose maybe just as a starting point, uh, the, the first chapter you sort of really talk about names and naming and data elements, and so maybe if you just give us a, f- no, a few of your thoughts there. Not original with me, actually. Um, there's, again, some people from the, um, from the ANSI committee went over to the, um, 
Uh, let me grab my own copy of programming style one here. Um, went over to the, met- the Metadata Standards Committee mm-hmm. and started setting up rules for defining things. And uh, rather than being uh, specific, they started with principles. Um, just what are the what are the parts of of, of something of in, in metadata? Yeah. There's been a lot of other there have been a lot of other standards, particularly uh, from my DoD contracting defense contracting these. The military had a, a fair number of, of things, I and mean, they were obsessed with paperwork. Uh, no great surprise to anybody. Yeah. So, and, uh, essentially, what I wanted to get in the um, was to take the uh, ISO 11179 principles and some of their particulars and put them into um, a set of rules that when I get to a uh, when I get to a job, I can say things like, "Okay, we're modeling uh, trees." It's a forestry application. Yep. Okay, what are the attributes? I want to know the tree diameter. I want to measure it in centimeters. Okay, I've got a unit of measure. I've got a good descriptive name for the attribute. I don't want to see things like... The one that drives me nuts, especially, is ID. Yep. Yeah, just the word ID by itself. uh, Yep. Yeah, usually what it means is, oh, it's an auto increment number uh, in my particular product that will uh, allow me to take a sequential tape file. It simply indicates the order in which the uh, the row was turned into a record and inserted into physical storage. Yeah, which has absolutely nothing to do with the data model. Indeed, and one of the one of the th- nightmare. one one of the things I'm sure you've got a strong thought on there, but uh, the. One of the things I'd love, love to uh, hear your opinions on is how far you bend in terms of your design work to the physical reality of, of the implementation under the covers. Um, as little as possible, frankly, because it comes I back... I suspected so. <laughs> yeah. okay, part of that's really just fanatic. You know, too many mm-hmm. years on the standards committee. But it's also uh, a couple of decades of experience. Uh, what tends to happen is that when you... You start using the excuse, well, it's very convenient machine in this particular operating system with this particular compiler in this particular year to write the code this way. What happens yeah. a year or five years down the road uh, when there's a new compiler and you have to port it? Uh, okay, actual example. The VAX, uh, the, the deck VAX before they, uh, they disappeared, yeah. had some really wonderful undocumented features. You could, in one instruction, compare a value to itself with auto-increment on both of the operands, and if it tested true, auto-increment the result. Yeah. This lets you add three to a value in a machine instruction yep. in one file. You ever try and maintain codes like that? Yeah, indeed. Uh, it blew you away. Uh, also, I mentioned I was a Fortran programmer. The early Fortrans uh, were implemented very, very close to the hardware. Contiguous storage uh, was, was the assumption. Um, certain things about the, the way the floating point numbers were represented, you know, in particular before we had the IEEE standards, yeah. uh, about how, how they were represented. And you could write all of this really insanely fast code 
um, using all these hardware tricks. But when it came back around to port it, it wouldn't move, or even worse, it would move, but it would not work right when it arrived at its destination. Yeah. And I did defense contracting. Uh, as one of my bosses explained to me, I, I bitched about having to go through all of the, the testing and stuff, because I could see it was right, you know, magic me, mm. and the arrogant programmers, early 20s. He said, Joe, if it isn't absolutely provably right, you will kill the wrong people. Yeah. Any minute. Uh, then I went on to do medical stuff. And again, if you screw up, you will kill people. Uh, a lot of kids have that attitude. I suppose because, well, desktop computing, uh, it's... It's little league scores. It's not uh, yeah. nuclear weapons. Um, so there's and no haven't, haven't worked in uh, people where people haven't worked with safety critical systems at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and frankly, another one that, that is a big gripe with me. Um, I think Kitty, and he's just passed his uh, certification for C sharp, Java, VB, whatever. Mm. Um, so the the pointy haired yes, Dilbert in Australia. Yes. So everybody does. Um, I don't know where he translates into Japanese, but I know they get him there too. Yeah, well, he seems to be a, a stable thing in the IT community. I think uh, it's it's almost a common thing, no matter where you live, people read Dilbert, yeah. I, I think probably 20 to 25% of the home pages for geeks are set to Dilbert. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the pointy-haired boss will not pay to send a programmer who's coming in from a procedural background is still fairly new to a database class. Hey, you speak VB, C Sharp, whatever. SQL is another language. Therefore, you can learn SQL on the weekend with this uh, dummies book I got you. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, we need a mission-critical system that, uh, that can hurt the company or other human beings. Well, end of the month. Yeah. Maybe the week after. And uh, in some ways, I'm annoyed with the kids because a lot of them are very arrogant about it. I have my Microsoft certificate. I am a real programmer. Never mind that in the United States, it takes six years to journeyman carpenter, union journeyman carpenter in New York State. Yeah. And I think probably the, uh, the skills for a good database person are um, a little stronger than for a good carpenter. Yeah, no, I'm not knocking a good carpenter playing those skills, but there's a little more intellectual effort that should go into being a database person. Yeah, the kid has a bit of arrogance. He's got the wrong mental model. God help us, he's usually smart enough that he or one of his buddies can clue something yeah. that will run, um, or limp. Not exactly yes. run. Actually, limp, limp is an interesting uh, analogy there because the uh, I must admit one of the things that I, I spend a lot of my time doing is going into sites where they, uh, as most people would in uh, working in this area, where you've got performance problems is is the reason you're you're brought in the door. But it quickly becomes clear that no one in the place at all has has any real database background. So, yeah. I, I I don't know. It's um, yes, it, a, a universal problem. Uh, but it, um, 
Oh, I can't read Shores. Uh, great, great quote about the invincible stupidity. No, I, I just sort of wonder, though, is it may be the thing you touched on before, though, that it's, it's fairly easy to get to a point where you get things sort of working. Especially on a small scale. Yeah. The machinery is, is fast enough that an incredibly bad design can run faster than it can be displayed. Yeah. Of course, as it increases in size, or if you actually need to put the results somewhere else, eh, you start noticing that, um, yeah, that while you, the screen was very pretty, yeah, the response time and the data are getting very, very ugly underneath the covers. Hmm. Um, we essentially put makeup on, makeup on a corpse. Yeah. You were starting to talk about, so ID was the thing that got you to that point. So. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. But no, the, the, the magical auto-increment number. Originally, mm-hmm. they came in, in the early versions of SQL, to mimic a, a record number, a yep. sequential file. We still had a sequential file number. It's in some ways not the company's fault, in some ways it is, but the um, originally, Ted Codd's primary key in SQL, which, which he backed off later, Nobody ever seems to remember this, but mm. uh, it did get in desk. He was still thinking in terms of tape merges. Everything has to have a sort key. And the primary key would be the primary access method, um, read sort key, to make merging possible. Mm-hmm. And then later on he realizes, wait a minute, key is a key is a key. Um, there's nothing special about this key versus that key. The real problem was uh, values versus nulls in the in an identifier in a, in a unique constraint. Yeah, and he dropped it. That that had been put into SQL. SQL had been built on top of old file systems, which depended on some kind of sort key, and it sort of hung around. Now, on top of that, we wind up with the idea of a, a physical record number. So the vendors who are storing things in contiguous sequential files back in those days, this is no longer true with, with hashing, with bit vector, mm-hmm. stuff like sand. Uh, so, but to, we actually, we're still mi- basically mimicking Mac tape on a disk. The um, the incremental the incremental row number was um, was easy enough to do. And what the heck? Let's go ahead and expose it. And that way, our programmer can uniquify. Sorry for the verb. Yeah. Uh, it's, no, uh, it's, I think uh, it's become a verb. I'm sure it has. Yeah. yeah it, if it isn't, it just did. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the um, it's quick, it's easy, it requires, it requires no brains, and you can feel like you're, um, like you're doing an RDEMS, and you're not. To actually go back and look at what you need for a... Um, for a relational identifier. That's work. I, that means I have to know my industry. Uh, though these days, frankly, with Google, um, there's no excuse for not typing a couple of, of phrases, spending 15, 20 minutes at most to find out what your industry standards are. Mm. Uh, nobody in their right mind, for example, in the book trade would uh, use anything but an international standard book number and is them. Yep. Their, own, their only question for uh, for its use would be, what kind of problem do I have converting over from the 10-digit to the 13-digit is-bin? Mm. 
just now yeah. about this year. In the U.S., uh, you guys, I don't know how Australia is, but in the U.S., we're converting over from our 10-digit UPC, Universal Product Code. Yep. Notice the American era and so Yeah. Uh, right. to, the, to the 13-digit EAN. Yeah, um, we, we've actually we've had 13-digit EAN now for oh, probably 10 or 12 years. Yeah, so. yeah and your conversion problem will, will be the same as ours, going to the 50-digit GTIN. Yes. Trade Actually, we, we have uh, we have GTINs widely in use already. Oh, you're ahead of us by about five, ten years, easy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I, I happen to know that because we're still I, not metric. <laughs> I, yeah, that's it. I, I happen to know that because I've I've been building systems for food wholesalers and people like that for many years. So. <laughs> yeah. But the. Um, yeah, it's a problem. You have to research it. The other one that drives me a little bit nuts, probably because it was a math major, is when I, uh, I mentioned check digits to people. The kids have no idea what a check digit is. Hmm. I don't mean they, they don't know a particular name or a bull code or something like that um, for it. I mean, they don't understand the concept. Yeah, there's actually no understanding of what a check digit is. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's... um. And to me, one of the first things you do when you're designing a, an interface that has to go to a person and get back to the database correctly is um, the industry standards. If I don't have one, how do I design an encoding? Uh, should my encoding have a check digit? If so, what's a good, appropriate check digit that will give me enough safety for, for my particular situation? It's interesting you mention the safety because that's often the problem. I've, I've seen people who do, you know, the, the typical I'll have a check digit, but it'll just be a, a modulo 10 of the whole number or something like that. And uh, yeah, no, no concept that if they refer, reverse digits, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, those are, those are awful. I mean, I, I don't expect anything uh, to a dihedral 5, which yeah. is the best one that I know of. Uh, because it's a little complicated. Fine, There's some table lookup, blah blah blah. But um, yeah, at least uh, at least a bull code, at least a lung code, yeah, something. Um, but but uh, yeah, if it doesn't have to be right, the answer is always forty-two. Douglas Adams is yes, uh, good on that. Um, no, it's a there's a loss of quality. There's a a, a huge increase in volume. And, uh, I don't know, the, the fact that databases became cheap, also when we started putting a lot of them on, uh, on desktops. Uh, I don't know if Home Depot has reached into Australia yet or not, but it's a, we, we a have chain operation. Yeah, we have equivalents. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, in, in the case in the United I know, I know that in the United States they've gone to South America and they're, they're going over to Europe and they're looking at China. Uh, the system that they use to recommend contractors to install the stuff that you buy at Home Depot is on access. Yep. It crashes once a week on a regular basis, and they can't get the, um, I, I don't know how it's going to work now that their CEO has been fired, but the, they haven't been able to get the, um, the permission to actually start a project to have a contractor's database. Now, somebody's selling home improvements uh, equipment and building materials should have 
a really good system for getting contractors. Mm. And they don't. How did this happen? Well, one guy started keeping a little access database on his desk in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, for, um, for contractors he knew that he could recommend. It became the company standard. Yes, it grew. Um, more like got cancer. Yeah, it's that kind it's, of growth. Yeah, it is. The uh, um, but look, I, I, the one thing I'd have to say about that, even though I looked at, I mean, that's a common scenario I see played out all the time, where where somebody has written some little access application, it's it's grown and grown and grown, and it it, it literally has got out of hand. But in the end, it's. Be, I'm just sort of one of the things that is positive about that, though is it's an indication that the tool was enabling enough for someone without <laughs> IT support to be able to start doing something. Yeah. <laughs> and to actually get some nice results that made it suddenly very valuable to the company. Yes. Um, wow, we, we really can get somebody out there to put in your sink. Um, yeah, never mind the a month from now, when we try to get his license and other stuff in there, uh, the system will keep crashing every day, and where's the backups? And Gee, I need a bigger drive on my uh, on my desktop, and uh, I'm not really supposed to be doing this in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Nope, that's common. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, endemic of the trade. Now, one of the things you, you do dwell on also is standard naming conventions. Uh, or the yeah. naming conventions from the standards. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's important. One of my complaints is that the, the front end and the back end guys, the app developers um, versus the database people, is we don't call the same thing by the same name. And when you get to data warehousing projects, it's even worse. One of my favorite horror stories um, back when I lived in Atlanta was that Delta Airlines was trying to set up a data warehouse across all of their, their databases. They were looking for the definition of a customer. Yep. They found 16 of them. Yeah. A customer could be an actual person with a ticket sitting in a plane on one leg of a flight, a person with a ticket sitting on several multiple legs of a, of a uh, flight with connections. Mm-hmm. He could be an eagle that uh, required special treatment or not. It could be an infant in arms who takes up no seat. By the way, if you lose a baby in an overhead bin or in baggage handling, it's much worse than a suitcase getting lost, yes. trust me. <laughs> um, then it could be a pre-sold seat belonging to a corporation where no person has been assigned to it. It could be a pre-sold seat that uh, was never redeemed. Um, and they went through all of these things. Uh, oh, uh, a, a company person... Travel uh, without paying for a ticket, a transfer to get them over to uh, to another location. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. It, it, but it went on and on and on. And it turned out, passenger, which you thought would be a basic thing in an airline industry. What do they sell? Yeah. And who do they sell it to? Uh, 16 different definitions. So, of course, when the reports matched. Um, and they were, they were busy trying to get this straight for the data warehouse. Probably a data warehouse is one of the nicest things that can happen to a company if for no other reason than it is the first time, in most cases, that anybody looks at the enterprise as a whole. 
yes. and actually starts wondering about data definitions and a data dictionary and now, now there's a question. Um, I'm sort of thinking, do you, do you think one of the reasons that uh, you get the success of little access databases and things that are quick and easy to whip up is that people who develop those get to spend all of their time on the most common use case and they just simply ignore all the rest, where people doing proper system development probably spend most of the time on the edge cases? Well, spend a lot of their time, too, on the enterprise level. Yeah. Um, well, for example, going back to Home Depot and their um, their contractor's database, it was developed in Atlanta, Georgia. The state of Georgia, okay, we are the United States, has um, different contracting license arrangements and standards and whatnot than any of the other 49 states. Yeah. And territories and whatever in there whatever else is, is covered by Home Depot. So um, all he has to worry about is the particular, you know, to validate a contractor uh, ID number, all he has to worry about for his local database is um, how many digits, is there a check digit, um, who do I call the, um, the state licensing agency to see if this guy really is certified as an electrician. Um, okay, that's yeah, that's doable. Now, yeah. multiply that by 50, all of which can be different, all of which can change any time our state assemblies meet. Um, and you got to track it. And then you've got reciprocity. Is an electrician in New York State also authorized to, um, to wire houses in New Jersey? Yes. Or not? I- um, and suddenly it becomes this, this complicated thing. Um, no, the, the, one of the first articles I ever wrote decades ago for Information Systems News was called the Rhino Algorithm. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the premise of it, with, with, a, with a cute little cartoon to go with it that friend Jerry Collins uh, used, uh, did the illustrations for, was uh, in the old Tarzan movies, old black and white movies, when Tarzan was attacked by a rhinoceros, he would stand there, make a noise, and jump to one side, and the rhino would charge past, and he'd be safe. Um, it's a great algorithm for one rhino. Yeah. Now, let's add a flock of rhinoceri, or herd, uh, whatever the collective noun is. Um, repeat the single rhinoceros algorithm over and over is not a good solution. Cars would be turned into peanut butter on the jungle floor. Yeah. Um, things don't scale. Large projects, especially with interactive things, uh, just, it really is a different kind of problem. And it's, it's not just a matter of buying another disc or um, do the same thing over again faster. They become fundamentally different kinds of problems at, at certain levels of scale, and that's another one that uh, the kid that came up with his um, certificate for Microsoft or you know, his 16-week um, training class doesn't really understand because he's not seen it. Still thinks in in those terms. Small sets, clear clear definitions, um, the ability to fake a few things because the specs are sort of vague. 
Um, it's, it's not the same as doing an enterprise-level system at all. Yeah. Indeed. So one one of the things that you also uh, discuss quite a bit is that uh, people end up redesigning and coding schemes where existing ones already are in place, but they're oh, also yeah. unaware that they exist. And in this day and age, the Google use. Now, one of the first things I do when I'm teaching a, a college class is I, I talk about scales and measurements, and I talk about encoding as a second lecture, and this, the end of the, uh, the second lecture on the encoding schemes, I've got a bunch of 3x5 cards. I pass them out, and on the 3x5 cards is something weird. Ring sizes, Japanese shoe sizes, Bulgarian hat sizes, something like that. And your job is to come back next class with um, a download of the specs, the standards, that define these things. Yeah. Uh, and just, I'm watching, it's not that it's particularly important that we know that, you know that there are five different ways to size rings or that Bulgaria uses the EU hat size system or whatever, but just the idea that you've now learned that you can research it. Yeah. In particular, uh, I don't know if you're a, a Donald Knuth, um, the art of programming. If yes, it, indeed. Never finish. But the, his, do you know what his first published article was? No. He was in high school. He was in, uh, he was in a Lutheran high school in the United States, and uh, Mad Magazine asked for submissions. Knuth's first published article was a parody of the metric system for Mad Magazine, <laughs> called the Potter ZB System of Weights and Measures. And I throw that one on one of my three by five cards to see if anybody can find it. And no doubt they can. Uh, actually, I've got it on CD. I have a complete set of uh, Mad Magazine up to about issue 150 mm. on CDs uh, from Broderbund. Uh, and when the, when the kids go nuts on that one, I print it out for them, hand it out, and get a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's Wallywood illustrations. It, it, it's great fun. It's, it's totally silly. But it's first publication at age 17 or whatever it was. That's it. Granted, there's a lot of different standards. Um, like, there's two scales for earthquakes: the Richter and one that's Italian, but I cannot remember. There's about five systems for uh, for rings. There's Japanese, European, American, and British systems for shoe sizes: Fahrenheit, centigrade. Um, I'm pretty Celsius. Can't call yeah. it centigrade anymore. Ah, absolute or Kelvin. Uh, for temperature, and so on. I'm always very ashamed, and I have to apologize to people, for the fact that the United States is still not on metric. I, I must admit, I've, all, I've always found that intriguing, but, uh, yeah. We're, we're a big enough economy, we can sort of keep it inside our <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, at least our cars are being made to millimeters, finally, thanks to the fact that the Chinese are supplying us with parts, probably. Uh, we're finally buying our Coca-Cola in liters. Yeah. Our cigarettes are now measured in millimeters. And if you've got cigarettes, Coke, and automobiles, you've probably got an American. <laughs> you're you're a long way. way. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but the, the other thing we do that's crazy here is when we do go over to metric, we set up our own series of, uh, of sizes. 
we used to have a system for liquor called the fifth. It was a fifth of a court, which imperial court. Yeah. Uh, we rounded those sizes to the nearest uh, milliliter and came up with a completely different set of bottle sizes as opposed to Europe. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea why. And I really yeah. wish we'd move over to A-series paper. It makes so much more sense. I must admit, yeah, it, it's funny uh, where I live in a country where I just take all those sort of things for granted. Where, and uh, I do find it frustrating when I'm elsewhere, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, uh, the one that was uh, was always fun was um, doing faxes between A4 and 8.5 by 11 inch paper. Yes, yeah, so letter paper, yeah. Uh, and then the last line always disappears. I don't know why. Uh, I kind of wish we had done it. Um, well, hundred years, two hundred years ago. Yeah. But um, you know, miles per. I know the traditional system. Sure. Now convert miles per hour to furlongs per fortnight. Smarty yeah. pants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Indeed. Well, listen. Okay. That's probably a great point to just uh, take a short break, and we'll come okay. back after the break. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular... The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. So what I'll get you to do first up, uh, Joe, is just maybe anything you're willing to share about. Tell us whereabouts you live. I gather you've been having some pretty unseasonal weather and things happening <laughs> lately. Okay, I'm in Austin, Texas, which is in the middle of Texas. Imagine all your old Western movies. Or imagine the, the middle of Australia, yeah. I suppose, and it's probably more appropriate for your audience, uh, without the sheep. Cattle, not <laughs> sheep. Uh, and we've had an ice storm, and we're down in the 40s and 50s. For what it's worth, very typically our summer is a minimum of 10 days and up to 40 days at the extreme of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. And it's dry. We're high desert. Yeah. So uh, the airport closed down for two days because they couldn't get the icer for the planes. Who the hell would stock the icer? In the, yeah, in the middle of Texas, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's been kind of funny. And um, in the meantime, I'm oh, running around with my personal life, uh, trying to get started and get into my seventh book on uh, using tables, table-driven queries, for hmm. um, for programming. My premise for the book is that um, Intel has just announced they're going to have an 80-core chip in the next few years. Yep. And I'm looking at storage. Storage is getting incredibly dense and fast. We're looking at the possibility of solid-state disk as a very, very real thing. Oh, look, already, I think, becoming quite common. I've got a... uh a friend, uh, Brett Ryan, who used to work with uh, 
with the com- with uh, Redify, the company I work with, and uh, he's been talking to me about some of the uh, Ramsan drives and things. And uh, uh, one of the clients I talked to the other day who'd been trying one, in fact, had processes that literally had taken them 14 hours that now took like 12 minutes. Yes. And uh, we're going to start manufacturing those things the way we print out uh, newspapers. Mm. A lot of the technology for, for doing semiconductor stuff is becoming continuous process. So you just order so many meters of, um, of insanely fast semiconductor storage. Yeah. All folded up nicely in a box and, and plugged in. The bad news is we don't have the software for the parallelism in the operating systems and in the databases. That's got to come. We've got a lot of theory behind it. Clive Kirschkohl's sorting algorithms, uh, a bunch of other things from, from years past are out there. They now need to be implemented. And in the future, uh, Jerry Purnell, uh, decades ago, had a, one of Purnell's laws um, which I always lo- uh, a lot of his laws are great, but yeah. the one I liked and thinking of is the um, if you can allocate one processor for every task, do it. We need to get to the point where we can damn near allocate one processor for every row in a table. Yeah, within my lifetime, uh, my, my grandfather lived to see the Wright brothers and men on the moon within his lifetime. Mm. I do not think I'm exaggerating, um, but it means that suddenly table-driven approaches to things are practical as opposed to computational. For example, if I want to do the uh, oh, a complicated fin- net present value, it's a reasonably complicated yep. uh, financial function. Um, I can do it with table lookup the way we used to back when we had the books and stuff and uh, slide rolls. Or I could actually go ahead and do the computation. Right now, I'm doing it with the computation. I've got a floating point processor off to the side, blah, blah, blah. Every row, I can, I can hit it. But, okay, what happens if I can store in, in primary storage, million rows? The net present value and the interest rate stuff that I'm working with is probably going to be less than a million values. Interest rates tend to go by a tenth of a percent or a hundredth of a percent. Yeah, their finest granularity. I can suddenly load an entire table for net present value, domain storage, go to a massively parallel processor, slap them together with, with my raw data, and come back with the results in parallel without ever having done a computation. Yeah. Only doing joins. And it's coming, and it's not that far away. What's what's actually intriguing? I I have a friend Joel Pobar who was in the uh, CLR group in uh, in Redmond. He's moved back to Australia now. But uh, one of the sessions uh, that I attended, he did recently, again addresses the whole, you know, when we do have an enormous number of processes available, even in the operating system, it, it's what do we do with them? And what's intriguing is that many of the problems they're now trying to solve are problems that. Are already solved common in uh, commonplace in databases, um, in, in <laughs> yeah. terms of how things are done in sets and so on. Where, again, if you look at the operating system, it, it's always a whole lot of tasks, each of one, each of which are just procedural logic. So, but yeah. they really don't ever tend to think about, you know, you know, if I could actually process every service at once or every, yeah, what, what would I do? 
It's a, one, of the, one of my tests to see if something is relational is that the consequential order. Yeah. If I, could, if I had a magic, if I had Maxwell's demon and could drop it on uh, each row uh, or even a, a small within my database um, and get a result back, would it, um, would it work? And if, if so, that's a relational. If I depend on sequential order, then um, I'm not in relational land. I'm back in tape files. Yeah. Maybe very fast tape files, but tape files. Nothing against sequence. It's a very, very powerful construct. But it's not the independent partition set model that, uh, that we're trying for. It's not declarative. Yeah. That's good. Well, maybe uh, one of the things I might get you to do is to just, uh, we might just wander through some of the specific rules you have in terms of, or listed in terms of names and data elements. And so, um, okay. first up, I suppose, the the names themselves. You're starting off, you're saying, watch the length of names, avoid special characters and quoted identifiers. Okay. Now, the, um, basically, you'd like something that can port to the other, uh, what we used to call X3J languages. These were the, uh, the Fortran, the COBOL, and whatnot, that were in the ANSI X3J standards. Yep. The J indicated the, um, the language. Um, but the, I suppose the important thing is the data element should have one and only one name consistently used across the entire, actually, uh, across the entire enterprise. Yeah. Um, so that there's no confusion when I say, uh, I don't know, um, tree butter. I know that it's a diameter of a, of a tree that uh, is measured in centimeters. Yep. And I can go to a data dictionary. I can find this. I'll know it. Um, and so will the guy doing the application code. So when he asks somebody to input information in, in the front end, he'll put a little CM beside the, the measurement. Yeah. And even put in a reasonableness check. Do you think 4,000 centimeters was really the diameter of the tree? <laughs> um, or two centimeters was the diameter of the tree that you you were putting in. Yeah. Special characters, again, so that it doesn't go over to other languages. Okay. I started off as a C programmer uh, fairly early in my career. Special characters do things. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, I, I must admit, I, my, my logic there is I tend to just routinely in all languages tend to avoid special characters because I figure somewhere along the way it's going to get me in trouble. Yeah, it's going to execute. It's going to be executable somewhere. Yeah. Or you're going to be in a different character set and it'll sort differently or something. Um, the number sign was the one I really wish that the Sybase SQL Server family had never allowed. It's too easy. It's quick. Uh, and now suddenly we've got C Sharp. Yeah. Uh, or as I like to call it, C Octothorpe. Actually, one of the things that's... Interesting with that is, of course, uh, a good example of that is that uh, names like C Sharp uh, don't search well in Google, for example. Um, oh, yeah. But the um, quoted identifiers are allowed. And a lot of the other companies like them um, because they were, you know, it was, it was a good way to get a, something for just, they're really a bad idea. Um 
the ISO 11179 naming conventions are, are actually fairly innocuous. It basically says uh, genus species, tree diameter, a particular attribute. It goes into some other things. It's a fairly simple discussion about things. And it's certainly the report. What I did in the in the book was um, come out with a bunch of postfixes and define them very carefully as to what they were, like you know, underscore ID, underscore date, underscore number for, for tag numbers, name, so on. The only area I think probably is controversial on my list, which frankly I stole mostly from Teradata. Yeah. Why Teradata? Because they do data warehouses. Data warehouses are worried about... Uh, about that kind of thing, about data at the uh, at the summary level, yeah. at, the, at the corporate level. Um, but I did uh, class, type, and category as um, as various levels of restriction um, or precision, maybe is a better word, on uh, on naming something. Uh, a category was an external source that has a nice distinct rules and stuff for grouping like uh, biology, the categories inside biology. Class is internal coding. Uh, no external source for it, but the company's pretty good about it. We, yep. we did find a first-class user, such and such, or that kind of thing. In type, was a little vaguer, maybe a little less formal. Um, and, of course, everybody um, will have their own little thing that violates those rules, but I just wanted something there. Yeah. Address versus location, status, um, image, whatever. And I'm not opposed to somebody else adding a short, abbreviated um, catalog of postfix code. Yeah, I noticed that you you don't mind those. I, yeah, the postfixes. I, I must admit, I'm not a big fan of them too much. Uh, what, okay. But one of one of the things I do find that that drives me insane is where I see. You know, people with uh, words joined together and they've abbreviated one word, <laughs> and the amount they've achieved by abbreviating it is very little. <laughs> and I just think, why not just write the word? You know, it's uh... well, if you got a standard, if you got a standard for the for the postfixes or for the abbreviation, it makes searching in the data dictionary easier. Yeah, but you'd really like to see the the, the genus and the species when you're going through the data dictionary. Things related to trees. Yeah. Um, tree type, tree diameter. Um, but actually, wouldn't you say, even yourself, the uh, something that makes it easy to search a data dictionary, isn't that really an implementation detail? Um, because we could solve that a different way, perhaps? Yes and no. Um, it's also conceptual. It gives you a taxonomy where you mm. organize your data. And I know that when I'm coming into something brand new, uh, completely blind. Um, okay, the first word is going to be a simple descriptive noun sort of kind of thing that um, know what I'm dealing with. Yeah. So I might expect to see, say, marriage, and then inside that, maybe I don't know the uh, the postfixes, but uh, if I see marriage, L I C for license. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, that's good, marriage license. And then I see marriage date. Um, I see marriage official. Or maybe something other, official's a little weird, but, you know, authority. 
Yeah. I know they were married in the church or if it was a civil service or <clears throat> something about that. I, I'm expecting to see the license or the legal permit of the guy that, uh, that performed the service. Okay, I, yeah, I know that it's all going to begin with marriage. Yeah. Yeah, I think possibly what I, what I react to myself is uh, I've, <laughs> I've been working in an environment lately where um, uh, people using Blackberries uh, management to you uh, send emails are becoming very common. And uh, what, what's quite intriguing is, is, of course, the typing skills and so on on those are uh, very poor for the managers. And uh, as an example, uh, the, the shortest email I ever received, I got one the other day that said TYD. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I, I had to sit and look at that for ages, and then I realized it actually said thank you and then his name. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and again, even contextually, if I, I have another one, yeah, I had another one the other day where he had the word app in it, A-double-P. For ages, I was trying to work out what it had. Be- we were discussing an application and I could not work out the context at all, and in the end, it suddenly dawned on me that the word was appreciate. Oh, God, I would have never guessed. Yeah. Appointment, application misspelled, for you know, app misspelled. Um, oh. And, yeah, so probably I'm reacting to that. <laughs> yeah, uh, overly abbreviated. Well, remember the uh, learning emoticons? Years ago, when I was living in Los Angeles, I had a. Um, I used to go to a comic book store. I still collect a little. Well, I, I still read more than collect um, these days. But the, one of the kids at the, the comic book store uh, is a very charming girl who now is married, uh, has a kid, and all that. Um, but I, I met her. I met her when she was seventeen, and she used to take me over to um, the Mingus Hills Community College and teach me. To um, to do emoticons. I had never done that, and then I would yeah. I would show her telegraph codes, which she had never seen. A dash three zero dash for the end of an article, mm. and some of the other things that used to exist only in telegraphs that were still part at that point were still part of uh, the United States publishing industry for manuscripts and stuff. I mean, people still, uh, I get funny looks for my dash dash, capital C-E-L-K-O dash dash, when I yes. sign stuff off on the internet. That's from an old Unix system convention in the military. Yeah. We were always last name, and the dash dash indicated that it was some kind of Terminator. Yeah. Um, in fact, yeah. The ways uh, of our it's, tribe. <laughs> it's a, a version of a special code, uh. Actually, one one I was having a, a big chuckle about. I read uh, read about recently. They were talking about uh, in Belgium. I don't know if you saw this one, but they were talking about the tax returns. And uh, what they had is they had an optical character reader that was processing tax returns. And when it couldn't process uh, the value, it returned all nines. And uh, of, course. of course, the next the level. Convention. Yeah, and so the next level of the system didn't recognize that at all. And the budget of the entire country was overstated uh, by something like eight hundred million dollars or something, uh, completely. 
And this this is right it. through to Parliament and having to readjust budget expectations and so on and so on. And this oh. was what? because there was a magic number. <laughs> yes. No, but if in the old days with COBOL, we used to, uh, all blanks in Fortran would read as zeros on the punch cards. Yeah. Um, so when we were doing the, uh, IC, uh, the ICD codes, International Classification Disease, when somebody was undiagnosed, they'd leave his punch card blank. Yeah. And the all zero code in those days, it's been corrected since, version six or seven, it was cholera. <laughs> so a third of the people in U.S. hospitals had cholera, <laughs> indicating an epidemic. Um, That's but only needed, well, Fortran stats. COBOL could recognize blanks versus zeros yeah. and report it that way. So, of course, the reports didn't match, which was another problem. Um, but we, we always used to use all minds for... Um, miscellaneous stuff that would sort to the bottom and all yes. zeros for unknown in, in, in the COBOL environment. Yeah. Um, just a, well, the, the ISO sex codes. Yeah. Zero is unknown, one is male, two is female, nine is corporate uh, corporate person. Yeah. <laughs> actually, person. now there's an interesting one. Uh, are they actually a standard, those ones? I mean, I, I, uh, I've seen varying things on the ISO sex codes or gender codes, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it is a, it is a standard. There are some modifications of it uh, for medical purposes. Uh, current gender and previous gender. <laughs> and, yes, uh, I noticed. Actually, one one I liked, I think, said indeterminate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, those are. No, it's sort of funny. Uh, when I'm writing the book, uh, I mentioned that the ICD code. Um, and the Dewey Decimal Code are both three digits, decimal, three digits. So you can confuse them if you put them all in the same table. Yeah. And um, I can't remember what to... I probably got to, to, Google, uh, to, to go to my manuscript now and look it up. It mm. really was funny. But the, one of the codes was family and pastoral counsel, uh, counseling under religion in the Dewey Decimal <laughs> Code. The, and... In the ICD codes, it was indeterminate adolescent sex gender identification <laughs> or something. Um, you know, basically, you haven't dif- you're an adolescent, and you haven't dif- differentiated yet. <laughs> um, I mean, this is these things are not even close. <laughs> yeah, but they they have the same code number. Mm. So I suppose the the rule there pretty much is if there is a standard coding, use it. Use it. Yeah, because otherwise you're going to end up having to translate somewhere. <laughs> somewhere along the line. Also, it's more than that. Somebody else will maintain the code for you. Yeah. The outside trusted authority will do all the work for you. Would you really like to maintain something equivalent to, say, the Dewey Decimal Code if you're running a, a statewide library system? Yeah, no. Uh, of course not. Uh, it's, it's just not worth it. You can't communicate with people. Uh, the overhead is is absurd. Um, possibility of errors and miscommunication are, are just too dangerous, especially for anything important like say medical uh, information. So, of, of course, you follow standards. Yeah. Um, I suppose uh, I, one of the uh, common religious debates, debates is the singular versus plural table names. Okay. My my take on that is that a table is a set. 
Therefore, it should have first, if possible, a collective name. Then, if not possible, for some reason, a plural name, and that the singular name is generally not acceptable at all. Uh, the collect, for example, uh, I don't have a table called employee. I might have a table called employees, plural, but I'd really rather have a table called personnel that gives me the abstract collective noun uh, for it. Why? Because it's a set. It's not any particular bunch of members. It's certainly not one member. I want something that summons up a set, not a... uh, not either a crowd of individual items in a bag or mm-hmm. a single person sitting out, a single entity sitting out there. I want to, I want to collect it now. And in English, it's fairly easy to do. We, um, you know, we have a lot of collections, uh, and we're generally good at it. You know, a gaggle of geese. Um, it's generally easy. The, uh, the original reason for doing the, the singular names was from file systems where I bring in one record at a time. And as I look at one record at a time, I can think of it as a singular noun. I'm looking at employee. I'm looking at an employee record rather than a set-off employee rows. Yeah. Um, so it, it sort of hung over. It showed up in oh, geez, one, of the, um, one of the U.S. federal standards also, um, IDEF or something. I'd actually mm-hmm. have to go back and look. Um, prefers the singular. It's, yeah. No, it, it's a good idea for a relational. Um, the exception you make is tables that have only ever a single row? Yes. If I've got a, uh, a table of, say, constants, um, you know, I, pi, C, um, Avogadro's number, whatever, and there's only one row, and I've got the columns with the, um, with the names, of the constant and their, their value probably expressed as a floating point number. Yeah. Um, then I'll, I'll go ahead and lock the table down to one row with, with some kind of constraint, and then I'll put in the values. And I'll put those values in as defaults, so I can say insert into constants table defaults all the defaults all. Yeah. Um, and all all the values are populated from the defaults. Yep. Yeah. Uh, which nobody seems to know exist in SQL. But it's been there since about uh, 89. Yeah. Little used feature. Yeah. Actually, do you think that's actually almost like a little bit of a failing, is that there's no uh, different construct for storing things like that rather than a table, which suggests actually, there a is. set? Um, actually, there, there is. There's a, uh, I can do a create view constants yep. and values per in and... Um, and list them out that way with, with yeah. a table constructor in uh, SQL 99. I actually started in SQL 92. Yeah, so you can go create view, view name, list of columns as values, and then a list of values, yeah. 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 And that was SQL um, 99 syntax, it, yes. Yeah. It, it, it gives, it, it's a little verbose, but it ain't bad. Yep. We talked to a COBOL programmer. Us SQL guys look like wimps. <laughs> oh, no. And relationship tables or linking tables? 
I prefer relationship table over linking. Linking implies pointer chains and stuff like that, yep. which are not relational. Uh, it, it really is a relation. And a relationship can have characteristics of its own. For example, a marriage, assuming that, you know, okay, right now the U.S. is going through all kinds of stuff on that, I, and the rest of the world. But uh, marriage needs a guy, a gal, and some kind of legal authority that can issue a license number. Yeah. Uh, well, the license number is not a property of either the guy or the gal, but mm. of the marriage itself. Yeah. So it really is a relationship. It's not a link between a guy and a gal. It's, yeah. It's, it's more than that. And I, I never like the term link. Somebody goes, I keep thinking link list, pointer chains. Yeah. I meant lisp again. Oh, my God, I never really did lisp right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I would always drop a parent somewhere. <laughs> Actually, I put it in the wrong place and it would run. <laughs> <laughs> Another one I think uh, you mentioned in there also was names that uh, where people use the same, a different name for the same things in different tables. Oh, yeah, that, that happens all the time, especially with the ID, the, the ideas, as I call them. Yep. Um, if you just declare something to be ID, so you'll get student and you've got a column called ID. Later on, you'll talk about student underscore ID in another table. Well, this is like changing the name of your cat as it walks from room to room. Not that it matters to the cat because they don't come from their cold, but uh, the same data almost should have the same name consistently across the uh, across the system. Sometimes it's discovered later. I mentioned the thing with Delta Airlines and their uh, their warehouse trying to discover exactly what a passenger was. All the possible definitions of the passenger. Yeah. That's a little different situation. Uh, they they were really having a definitional problem, and suddenly realized there's not just passenger. Yeah. There were physical passenger, virtual passenger. Yeah, all of the above. Food, yeah. food, food service passenger, incident in arms passenger. Seeing I oh the other one seeing eye dogs. Yes, actually that's an interesting one. Now the good good story with, with Delta on that one. Uh, there was a they had a short commuter hop that went between was, um, Savannah and Atlanta. Um, that uh, was one of their feeder airlines, small partner things. And there was a blind guy that used to um, he was connected to the state government somehow. But he used to fly back and forth between his home in Savannah and the legislature, and he'd, of course have his dog with him, and then. Um, they got stuck somewhere, uh, somewhere for a while, and the pilot at this time. He was you know, flying back and forth like once a week yeah. uh, on this little commuter hop. So one of the pilots, you know, are you going to be okay? It's going to take about two hours. We've got some mechanical problems. Oh, I'm fine. I've got my Braille here. Uh, but, you know, the dog needs to be walked. Oh, no problem. So the pilot takes the same high dog in the harness off the plane <laughs> to the horror of everybody that's watching on the ground. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was listening to um, one of the podcasts I listened to is uh, one called uh, Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. 
I often have people ask me which ones I listen to, but uh, uh, one of the stories they were talking about was uh, a short 330, uh, one of the, I don't know if you've ever seen them, they're an Irish design thing, and they, they, they kind of look a bit like a shoebox with wings. They, they don't really look to me like they should fly. But what, what, they, what, they, do have at the, what, what they have at the front is uh, a fan for the pilot, but it isn't enco- enclosed in a wire mesh. It's actually just got rubber on the blades, so if you literally put your hand into it, I mean, you'd immediately have this sensation that your hand was going to be cut off. Then all of a sudden you'd realise you've, you've still got a hand. But uh, they were talking about um, one of the flights where the pilot came on to do an announcement, and as soon as he started talking, he put his hand into the, the fan without realising and then came out with this great expletives and everything, and then just cut off. <laughs> and, and, of course, all the passengers just sitting there white-faced. You know? <laughs> you're not sure going to yeah. those doors. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't look good, yeah. <laughs> it didn't sound good, yeah. Just oh, beautiful. I think one of my favorites was a million years ago. Uh, the pilot comes on with the, Hi, this is God, voice that they do. We'll be flying at such and such uh, altitude. Uh, so, and he doesn't realize he hasn't clicked the, uh, the intercom off yet. He turns over to, I, I guess, the co-pilot. Okay, Charlie, let's see if we can just goddamn some of a bitch off the ground again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, so that, that's pretty much bringing us up to time, Joe. Uh, what, what I should ask you, though, is um, what, what have you got coming up in your world or where will we see you or uh, your new book oh. you were talking about? Well, the new book hopefully will be out this year. I'm, I'm trying to be really good about finishing it. Uh, I want to get to pass in um, 2007. I'm, I'm and that's in, we should world. mention, actually, that's in Denver this year, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, hopefully it will not get nosebleeds. Yep. Um, I don't know why. I don't do well at altitudes. Um, ah, I spent okay. 20 months in Salt Lake City and uh, got nosebleeds the whole time I was there, as well as freezing to death and being terrorized by, Nor- uh, by Mormons who didn't want me to drink. Ah, as well, well, so you can certainly appreciate that. Oh yeah, so yeah, but so yeah, so Denver this year, and uh, from memory, that's September, isn't it? So the rest of the time, uh, I don't know. Nobody's told me. I, I don't get to run a lot of my own life, but mm. why should I? I haven't had much experience with it. <laughs> Other people are are much more in control of it than I am, and I sort of um, go with the flow. And uh, hopefully, I'm going to try and do more internet teaching. Um, I've been mm. working for MySQL, and uh, the end of last year, all my classes booked for uh, on database design booked completely, very nicely. Uh, this year they're a little slow, probably because the bookings at the end of, the, of last year were the result of trying to get rid of stuff from the budget yeah. before it expired. Uh, this year I'm actually going to have to work for it, mm. and um, I'm kind of hoping that. I can do some other things with uh, with MySQL. I'll be doing MySQL specific things for them. Yeah. Um, I will be doing database design, temporal queries, hierarchical queries, portable things. So mm. hopefully I, I can get the word out and let people know. Yes, MySQL is the is the host, but. The material is also good for an Oracle, DB2, SQL Server, whatever. Yeah. Uh, programmer that wants to pick up some techniques. Yeah. I'm, I really do tend to be 
more on product, more, uh, more on technique than on product. Than on specific product, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I always tell people, I'm the SQL guy. I'm not the SQL Server guy. I'm not the Oracle guy. I'm not the BB2 yeah. guy. I'm not the Memer guy. Uh, if you'd like a list of the names of people who are those products, particular people, yeah. uh, I got them. Yeah. And I'll send them to you. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah. If you've got a mixed shop, and you need to, to educate a lot of your people um, together before they divide out into their separate groups yeah. and, uh, and, and learn particulars, um, you know, please give me a call and I'll, I'll come out, say the magic words, take the money and go home. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time today, Joe. The, uh, I you, hope to get to, I met you at the past conference last year. I hope to, oh no, the year before, actually. Wow, it's that quick already. Yes, I uh, know. Was in, uh, in Dallas. Yeah. Get older, the Christmases start going by like windshield wipers. Yes, <laughs> indeed. So I hope to get to catch up with you in Denver. Well, I should be there. It's, it's an easy <laughs> enough flight. And if I were in better shape, I could, uh, I could actually bicycle it. <laughs> Oh, God, so, that's, <laughs> that's great. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir.